This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Thursday, January 19th. I'm Julia Caulfield. And I'm Gavin McGough. In today's headlines, Mountain Village talks deed restriction. Behind the Ofer Road avalanche. A Chair 9 update. And a mountain weather forecast. Mountain Village is digging into the nitty-gritty when it comes to deed restriction. With a new for-sale affordable housing project in the works in the Meadows, Mountain Village is looking to shift its deed restriction qualifications. We are vigorously pursuing the development of Lot 644. It consists of 29 units and 65 beds. Uh, is intended that this entire development will be deed restricted. That's Mountain Village Town Manager Paul Weiser speaking at Town Council this week. Mountain Village has had a long history of having a deed restriction that has been applied to most of the properties that have been uh, developed by the town for affordable housing. And that deed restriction um, is unique, I think, among some deed restrictions throughout the state of Colorado in that uh, it doesn't have a price cap, uh, that has pretty loose owner-occupancy requirements, and uh, has some other facets that are a little different. Um, And so today what we're asking for is for some guidance as to what we want the deed restriction to look like on lot 644. The first point of discussion is owner or buyer qualifications. Who gets to purchase and live um, within a particular unit? Council is on the whole supportive of an individual or local business buying a unit and renting it out as long as the tenant is qualified for a deed restriction. Here's council member Marty Prohaska. I have spoken with a number of small business owners who live in the town of Tyride or Lawson Hill and would love the opportunity to provide housing for their workforce. Still, council wants to ensure the neighborhood is for the community. It recommends longer leases so a tenant is in the neighborhood for at least a year, requiring the home is the tenant's primary residence and having the tenant work in the Telluride Arwen School District. Next, a price cap. Under Mountain Village's current system, there is no price cap. I can buy a deed restricted unit and then I can go out when to resell and I can sell it for whatever the market will bear. Um, apparently the market will bear a whole lot. Council is conflicted. Mayor Leila Benitez says she wants individuals in deed restricted housing to be able to build wealth. I mean, there was this big real estate boom there for a while and people who didn't live in affordable housing were able to benefit. Some of them cash out and it's helping them towards their retirement and their general investment portfolio. And I think that just because someone lives in affordable housing, they shouldn't lose that opportunity for building their own wealth and being able to build their own nest egg. Other members support the price cap to help keep the market steady and keep prices lower for the community. But once the deed restriction is in place... There's also a lottery process for individuals or businesses to have the opportunity to purchase the home. Mountain Village discusses hosting a lottery similar to those for Sunnyside in Telluride with applicants getting extra points or balls based on certain criteria. Here's Assistant Town Manager Michelle Haynes. You could get an extra um, ball or extra points if you're an employee of the town is one thing. If you're considered essential services, we've listed fire, police, teacher, wastewater, water, it could be hospital, any, any first responder, anything that you define as an essential service. The town also plans to set aside a number of units to sell directly to town employees. 
Council did not make final decisions on the deed restriction or lottery process. It still needs to vote on an ordinance to put the deed restrictions in place. They plan to discuss the ordinance next month. As the biggest storm of the season packed snow into the San Juans Wednesday morning, a natural avalanche slid over the Ofer Road, burying the town's only access point in 20 feet of snow. Throughout Wednesday and Thursday, the town of Ofer was more or less shut off from the world. Ofer resident, avalanche course instructor, and host of the San Juan Snowcast, Chris Dixon, sent KOTO an audio snapshot of life from behind the slide. Uh, Yesterday, on January 18th, 2023, a massive natural avalanche released sometime between 11 a.m. and 11.30 in the West St. Louis slide path, and it covered the only road in and out of Ophir. I was going to go to work at 11.15 yesterday, so I drove down the road like we always do, and I quickly realized there was a massive amount of avalanche debris on the road and a car in front of me actually drove directly into the debris, which was pretty interesting. They didn't see it coming. It was so blizzard whiteout conditions. So they drove into the debris. Um, Another car came down, picked up that person because their car was stuck and we all decided to quickly get out of there. I drove back up the hill to Ofer, um, parked outside the Ofer Town Hall and ran inside to tell John Wontropski, the Ofer Town Manager, about the avalanche and he hadn't heard anything about it yet. So I got a hold of him. Um, at this point, the power was out. He got on his uh, radio and was able to get a hold of uh, the Telluride Sheriff's Department, uh, San Miguel County Sheriff's, excuse me, and tell them what was going on. And they quickly got back and said, well, there's way too much risk right now to clear the road. Um, There's still a lot of avalanche prone slopes above the road. So really there was no way they were gonna do any clearing of it uh, yesterday. Um, There are a lot of families who were stranded with kids on one side of the avalanche path and parents on the other and vice versa. So the Ofer community kind of rallied together. Uh, We use a common radio channel here for backcountry skiing in the the canyons above Ofer. And everyone is on that radio channel sharing information, trying to figure out how to get people where they needed to be. With nowhere to go and nothing else to do, I went out and went for a little ski, poked around, dug a snow pit, looked at the layering, and wow, there's a lot of snow on the ground, folks. More snow than we've had all season, obviously, and our snowpack is reaching um, almost two meters in depth, so that's six feet deep. So that's pretty exciting. Um, And then around 6 p.m., I helped a friend who was like, I need to go to work in Silverton this weekend, and I need to get to my house tonight. Can you help shuttle me over the slide path? And so several folks uh, under the cover of darkness skinned over the slide path um, last night and were able to get picked up um, and then driven to their homes and then returned back to their vehicles. Um, And so people were able to come and go from Ofer. I think the Ofer plow driver, he actually got walked out um, right after the slide occurred so that he could make it home. Long story short, not something that's unusual for Ofer. This happens, you know, pretty frequently, once to a couple times a season on average. But for me as a new Ofer resident, this is pretty exciting. Also, I'm a huge snow nerd and avalanche uh, aficionado. So it's been really fun to look at the slopes above town and spot natural avalanches. And then watching this morning's heli tracks bombing was 
Oh boy, very exciting. Um, I got lots of good video of the avalanches coming down and they were able to trigger basically a large to very large avalanche in every single slide path that they bombed. So an exciting time to be in the San Juans and an exciting time to live in Ofer. And hopefully with the plow drivers now able to start clearing the road, we should be free from being trapped in here uh, sometime later today on Thursday. After a full day of work clearing the road and avalanche mitigation efforts in the peaks above the town of Ofer, by broadcast deadline, the road was expected to reopen Thursday at 6 p.m. Intermittent closures are expected on Friday the 20th to widen the roadway and finish the clearing work. We're getting near a year since the old Chair 9 made its last turns. And in just a week or so, the new high-speed quad will be heading up the mountain. We have officially completed all the mechanical work. Uh, we have all of the chairs on the haul rope as well. That's Patrick Latram, Vice President of Marketing and Sales for the Telluride Ski Resort. Telski is waiting for a new electrical engineer to arrive before it's able to set a date for the load test on the lift. But Latcham notes the resort is still planning to open it before the end of the month. You know, I think best case, we're opening up the new Chair 9 on, you know, late next week. Um, and then, you know, but it's also potential, you know, we open it more like on the 30th or the 31st. And while Chair 9 is opening later than originally planned, Latcham acknowledges the fun many have been having with the area as a hike to. It's really special. You know, right now we're in the midst of a, a window I think we're going to be talking about for years and years to come. You know, this is the last time, very likely the last time in all of our lives that we'll ever have Chair 9 as hike to train. So I highly recommend getting out there and getting after it. There's certainly some pros with without having it be lift serviced. Um, you know, and one of the big ones, I think, is just the solitude out there. You, you can get out on Chair 9 and not have a single person in front of you. And really, it almost just feels like this side country access. Um, so it's pretty special. It's uh and so I highly recommend getting out there, getting after it and enjoying it because we're in the midst of a, a small window that I think we'll be talking about for years to come. At the same time, he notes with ski patrol forced to mitigate the area as a hike to and with all the new snow, it is impacting the resort opening new terrain. We got Revy open today and I think the next thing on everyone's mind and radars is Black Iron Bull and uh, just ask that everyone be a little patient for that. We got a uh, with this storm cycle, our patrols really had to focus on the terrain that's already open and just doing mitigation on that. Mitigation work on nine's been tough without that lift. You know, it takes a while to do laps over there for patrol. Um, so our patrols have been really hard at work uh, mitigating all of our open terrain, and, and that's what they've had to focus on for the last week in this storm cycle. And as we get some bluebird days here, we'll be able to start focusing on opening up some new stuff as well. Chair 9 is on track to open by the end of January, so get those hike two laps in while you still can. A chairlift is often the perfect place for a conversation. This week, Telluride Science will host an impromptu ski session with Executive Director Mark Kozak. While the community may know Kozak as the head of the Science Center, he also has a background as an instructor for the American Avalanche Association, member of Jackson Hole Ski Patrol, a heliski guide, and snow safety director in Alaska. Take a few laps and chat on the chairlift on Friday, January 20th, starting at 11 a.m. Meet at the Sundial next to Tomboy Tavern. 
When the weather gets cold, what better to do than cozy in with some delicious music? Once again this winter, Telluride Chamber Music and the Telluride Arts District are teaming up for a Winter Chamber Music Happy Hour series. The series will kick off on Wednesday, January 25th, with Donovan Daly and Danny D'Alessandro on guitar and saxophone, respectively. Travis Fisher will play piano on February 22nd, and Annika Dean will enchant with her violin on March 6th. The Chamber Music Happy Hours will take place at the Telluride Arts HQ Gallery on Main Street from 5 to 6 p.m. The happy hours are free and open to the community. You're never too young to start belting out your favorite songs, whether it's driving in the car, singing in the shower, or actually participating in a choir. Next week, the Telluride Choral Society kicks off its spring sing rehearsals for the littles in the community. The choir will begin on Wednesday, January 25th for students 3rd through 6th grade. Rehearsals will take place at the Middle High School Music Room from 3.30 to 4.30 p.m. All students are welcome. Cutting taxes and lowering health care costs are some of the priorities Governor Jared Polis laid out in his State of the State address this week. As KOTO's Lucas Brady Woods reports, lawmakers are introducing bills that prioritize those issues, too. One bill introduced by Republicans last week aims to slow Colorado's rising property taxes. Property values in Colorado are supposed to be reassessed this year, but if passed, House Bill 1054 would delay reassessment until 2025. It also eliminates property value reductions and sets assessment rates at the same level for the next two years. Another bill aligns with Polis's goal of lowering health care costs. Democrat-sponsored House Bill 1003 aims to lower the price of epinephrine injectors, which are used to treat acute allergic reactions and asthma attacks. Lowering the cost of housing and strengthening red flag gun laws are also major priorities for Polis, but legislation dealing with those issues has not yet been introduced. Although he laid out his priorities, Polis has not expressed support for any specific legislation. I'm Lucas Brady-Woods at the State Capitol. Colorado has been the scene of several notorious mass shootings, but suicides are by far the leading cause of gun deaths here. In 2021, Colorado voters approved the creation of a new office within the state's Department of Public Health and Environment to tackle gun violence. They're partnering with the Colorado School of Public Health to create an information bank that tracks and studies gun violence across Colorado. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, KGNU's Alexis Kenyon spoke with Jonathan McMillan, director of the Office of Gun Violence Prevention at the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, about the new state efforts to address the growing gun violence epidemic. There have been attempts to study gun violence as a public health issue at the federal level, but legislators have been unable to allocate CDC funding for the research. Is studying this at the state level a way of being able to create a body of research? And how many other states are doing this? I, I think you, you really keyed in on one of the challenges of implementing widespread strategies and interventions into gun violence prevention immediately is that the lack of funding and the lack of research that has existed up to this point because of the Dickey Amendment which I think came into effect in 1993, which limited the amount of federal funds that could be allocated, not only across the nation, but even at the state level. So 
to answer your question, I think more specifically with, with the resource bank, uh, this is going to be, in my eyes, a game changer because it, it will be a repository of data of uh, best practices and, and, and the culmination of research, both locally and from the national perspective on what effective uh, strategies exist around gun violence prevention. And it'll be housed in one space. I kind of call it the Google of all things gun violence prevention here in Colorado. Um, additionally, that the resource bank will be a, a clearinghouse for information and resources that exist outside of just data. Hopefully, a place where people can share what's working for them in their local communities and be able to work and build some collaborations to scale some of those efforts up. And also a place where people can go to identify funding sources for continued research or continued projects. So. That's the hope in that Colorado will be a leader nationally in building this model of sharing information easily, making it easily accessible, and being able to help amplify the work that's happening in, uh, around gun violence prevention from this public health approach. So Colorado had 13 mass shootings last year with 80 people killed. Both of those are record setting, but that's not even, you know, the bulk of people who died because of gun violence. Most of them are suicide. And then there's homicide at 25% of gun deaths after that. And it just feels like gun violence is just getting worse every day. And it's overwhelming because we're talking about it all the time. And we're talking about mental health. And then we're fighting about gun rights. And meanwhile, just like more and more people are dying of gun violence. And there are more and more guns. What is an evidence-based solution to gun violence other than not having guns, which doesn't seem like it's really even an option because of such passionate ideologies on both sides? As a person who comes from a community that's traditionally been impacted heavily by, by gun violence, this is something that I'm very passionate about and why I was driven to pursue this work from a public health approach and looking at the data and looking what are some of the effective strategies. And one of the strategies that has shown to be the most effective really falls into what some would call uh, uh, responsible gun ownership practices and safe and secure storage. One of the easiest and simplest ways that a gun owner can reduce the likelihood of gun violence happening is by securing their firearm safely with, say, a gun or a trigger lock or a gun safe, or also making sure that it's, it's stored and unloaded. As oftentimes, say in the example of suicide prevention, if a person is having suicidal ideations, the research demonstrates that the longer that it takes for a person to have access to a means to complete that suicide, the less likely that they're going to go through with it. And if a firearm is in play, if that firearm is safely secured, it's much more, much less likely that they're going to be able to use that weapon to complete the ideation. That being said, we can also safe and secure storage is a effective way to make sure that firearms are not accessible to uh, criminals or those who should not have a, get a hold of them in case a firearm is lost or stolen because it's safely secured, unloaded, and difficult to access if you're not the proper owner. I've been speaking with Jonathan McMillan, the director of CDPHE's new gun violence prevention office. For KGNU, I'm Alexis Kenyon. 
The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for a 40% chance of snow showers tonight with mostly cloudy skies and a low around 15 degrees. Friday, there's an 80% chance of snow showers during the day and a 30% chance of snow showers at night with 1 to 3 inches of snow accumulation possible. The high is in the mid-20s with a low around 10 degrees. Saturday should be mostly sunny with a high around 25 degrees. Saturday night should be mostly clear with a low around 10. This has been the news for Thursday, January 19th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206.